This is the Fire Dog Podcast. The views and opinions presented on today's episode are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or the United States Air Force. Welcome, my name is Matt Wilson, and thank you for joining us for episode 13 of the Fire Dog Podcast. Our guest today has been an Air Force firefighter for 15 years and is currently serving at the Air Force Personnel Center as a fire protection deployment scheduler. He's joining us today to share his experience on deployments and give some insight into how deployment taskings work for Air Force firefighters. Please welcome Master Sergeant Ryan Ranieri. How's it going, Ryan? Good. How are you doing? Good, man. Good to have you on. Deployments is something that uh, I think a lot of people have questions on, so I look forward to talking with you and Having you provide some insight for us, I know I'm one of those people that uh, doesn't know exactly what's going on all the time. So, awesome. Well, thank you for having me. Um, it's a pleasure. Uh, like I said before, I'm, I'm glad to be doing this. I believe this is one of the the ways of the future for our career field and the Air Force in general in regards to um, this type of social media uh, podcasts. I know a lot of people listen to podcasts. I do every single day in the car going to and from work. Um, so, you know, I got caught up with all these episodes and love it. Uh, so if anything I can do to provide assistance and help for our career field, um, the better, you know, so I know there's lots of questions. People always have questions. I did before I got in this position and, uh, I learned a lot so far and, uh, I wanted to be able to pass on all that knowledge to everyone else. You're by yourself. You're in a bubble. We'll talk about that a little bit, probably coming up, but, uh, so you probably know a whole lot that the rest of us don't know. So I'm excited for you to share that with us. So Ryan, man, tell us about yourself, uh, where you've been stationed, where have you been deployed? Uh, I've been in the Air Force uh, 15 years. Uh, I've been assigned to uh, Andrews Air Force Base, uh, was my first base. And then uh, after I did some time there, went to Ramstein, uh, did uh, about four and a half years, almost five years at Ramstein. And then after Ramstein, I PCS to uh, Dias Air Force Base in Abilene, Texas, good old Dias. Um, Actually had a pretty good time there. Uh, and then after that, I uh, got an assignment down here at Randolph Air Force Base at AFPC uh, as the uh, current position I'm in right now, which is the uh, manager for fire emergency services, AEF scheduling. And then I've, I've deployed three times. Uh, my first deployment was to Baghdad, Iraq at Camp Sather on uh, Camp Victory. And then uh, sometime later, I deployed to uh, Fab Shindan in Afghanistan. Uh, great base, great great deployment. And then uh, most recently, uh, last year, I was deployed to Syria at Kobani Landing Zone. Uh, I was the fire chief there. It's a, That was probably my, my favorite deployment. It was very expeditionary. Uh, everything that we always review in CBTs that we say we'll never do or encounter, we encountered there in regards to uh, just quality of life conditions, you know, not having proper entities, bathrooms, all that fun stuff. So, uh, just really good nitty gritty deployment. Man, it sounds like we could have you on another episode just to talk about your experience in Syria or with your deployments in general. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, I, I was fortunate enough to have, uh, deployments that were in, uh, more contingency environments, uh, nothing against, uh, the rotational bases like, uh, Kuwait or, uh, some of those other large bases, but, um, Indeed. yeah, when you're actually out there, um, you know, you come to appreciate things a lot more. And, you know, for example, like what we're going through right now with this pandemic, uh, with the, the COVID-19, um, you learn to, you know, live without certain things. And when you're deployed to areas like Syria, for example, when we would have a traveling BX show up once a month or every other month, you know, you learn to ration certain supplies, 
um, when you're eating an MRE once a day for lunch and then a hot meal for dinner, you know, you learn to, you know, prioritize what you, what you're craving or what you're, you know, looking forward to for food. So definitely, uh, definitely learned a lot and uh, appreciate a lot too. It definitely makes you appreciate things that maybe you take for granted when you're CONUS or stateside. Very much so. So I'm sure that deployment to Syria and Afghanistan and Iraq, those kind of deployments, those austere conditions that you experience in Syria, that probably makes you appreciate readiness training a little bit more too. Oh, for sure. For sure. And just seeing the the way that it's progressed over the years, um, when I deployed to Iraq in 2005, our contingency pre-deployment training for a combat zone entailed us going to the security forces squadron on base and getting training by them. Uh, they took us out into a field on Andrews. Um, we did some drills in a field similar to what you did in basic training, you know, in regards to I'm up, they see me, I'm down, you know, stuff like that. They would go over like, you know, kind of like infantry movements. And then when I deployed to Afghanistan, then I went to CST at Fort Dix and that was 31 days of, you know, army led training going over actual like formal infantry training, uh, learning terminology, all that fun stuff. And now recently I went to Fieldcraft Hostel for Syria and Fieldcraft Hostel was two weeks of Air Force led training, but geared towards joint training with the army, uh, knowing their way of life in regards to uh, terminology for medevac stuff. And then in regards to, um, you know, how they call things. And then when I was actually deployed in Syria, the training I actually received in Fieldcraft Hostel, some of that terminology carried through because we, we were a tenant on in Syria with the Army. And uh, the Army used all this terminology. And fortunately, some of the stuff we picked up, some of the other stuff we didn't, but uh, fortunately, we were able to learn and understand and be a better cohesive team there as well. You have a whole lot of experience, a whole lot of training experience too, and hopefully pick your brain a little bit on that a little later. It's a question that I have for you, but Let's start out by talking about your position you're serving now. So you said you're the manager of fire protection, AEF scheduling. So how'd you get that job and what's it entail? So while I was deployed last year or in Syria, um, one of my buddies back at Dias sent an email saying, hey, here's some fire emergency services job openings on AMS assignment management system. Uh, two of them were on there. Uh, one was uh, over at IMSC and one was the AEF scheduler uh, where I'm at now. I applied for both of them and I ended up getting picked for the AEF scheduler. I think it was a uh, blessing in disguise in regards to um, getting that job because uh, the other position was in regards to compliance and all that stuff. And I, I've done that before in, uh, in my time in the Air Force in regards to, you know, doing MCT stuff and all that stuff. Um, but with the AEF, you know, I've never really been a UDM or, you know, readiness manager or anything like that in the fire department. So it was kind of just throwing me in with the wolves per se into new territory. And, uh, so it made me learn a lot, learn fast and, uh, appreciate what I've learned so far. That's awesome. How long have you been in the job? Uh, so I got here in September of 2019. Cool. So not too long, nope. maybe six months or so. Yes, sir. Well, let's get into some specific stuff. Hopefully stay unclassified or definitely stay unclassified. <laughs> Uh, yes, in sir. regards to deployment tasking. So I'm sure this is what everybody wants to hear and myself included. So in general, there's a lot of uncertainty surrounding deployment taskings uh, among the frontline troops like senior airmen, staff sergeant, tech sergeant, 
for example, there's probably an A1C or a senior airman out there that deploys every time they're eligible, but there's a staff sergeant five years in, he's never deployed. So can you provide some insight into how the process works and why deployment taskings vary? Yeah, sure. So I'll kind of give you a quick overview in layman's terms in regards to how a deployment comes about and how it goes from planning to execution. So two years out, uh, we schedule all deployments. And now when it's scheduled two years out, that means we receive the requirements from the uh, Secretary of Defense, and then it flows down to the different uh, components. So the Air Force gets ours, and then from the Air Force, and they come down and say, okay, this many is for CE. And then out of CE, this many is for fire. And then that's where I come into play. So we offer that up to the uh, Guard and Reserve first. And during this, if I refer to them as ARC, that just means the um, Air Reserve components. And uh, so we offer it up to the Guard and Reserve. And then when they get it, they'll look at their their resources that they have, and then they'll kind of, you know, get assigned per se to that. Now, they don't pick and choose like, hey, I want this great location here. I want this great location here. Um, we have some scientists that work at AFPC that have an algorithm, and they kind of assign them automatically because it's such a large number. And I'll get to that, why there's such a large number for the ARC here in a minute. And uh, so they get assigned automatically, and then they the ARC then reviews this data. And then they say, okay, yeah, good to go, or no, this base here, this um, guard unit here, they have a real-world mission to monitor this air, uh, airfield. So we need to you know, not take that take that mate taskings. So then that comes to us and then we input it into the system and then it's in our system and then it doesn't go live until, you know, two years from now. And then after that, then the act duty side gets put into it and we fill all the, the rest of the holes. And then after we fill all the holes for the, uh, with the active duty components, uh, then we, that all that information gets sent off to half headquarters air force. And then also, uh, the match comms. And then the MAGCOM FAMs at that point then say, yes, that sounds good. Uh, so, for example, then Global Strike will say uh, they're FAM per se, uh, which might not be a firefighter at all or fire related. He'll look at it, you know, just CE in general, say, okay, yep, you know, my Global Strike bases can support this or no, we can't. You need to push them off somebody else. So then at that point, um, once everybody um, says, hey, we're good to go, then it comes back to us as a finished product or most likely it comes back with edits and then we go through and we update. And then that's the planning phase. And then after that, after the planning phase, um, then it, it just kind of sits there. And then that's usually, you know, like I said, two years out. And then when it gets to about six months before that fiscal year, um, then our, um, in our section, um, the people that handle rotational requirements, uh, they go in the system and they click, click a button. And then basically then it allows all the match comms to see these deployments. So at that point, six months out prior to that fiscal year, the match comms can see it. Now, whether or not they tell the bases, um, that's on them. Um, some, some match comms will do that, you know, that early in advance, because when you're looking at six months out prior to that fiscal year, you might look at, you know, a year and a half out for a deployment. So that's how you can sometimes see a deployment or hear about, hey, this base got tasked, you know, so this so far out. So sometimes match comms do that. Sometimes your fans won't. Um, but then typically um, a 
individual that's deploying will know at least six months prior to that movement if it's if that base has been scheduled all along. Now, how it gets down to that base. Um, so then the MagCom will release this code in the system, and then it'll allow the base IPR and UDMs on that base to see, oh, look, we have taskings. Once they see that, then that's when your flight gets notified, with fire department will get notified. And then that's when you, you know, your deputy chief, fire chief, or your uh, fire department readiness officer will say, okay, okay, guys, I need to look at my roster here and see who's on this P-band for this rotation. And then they kind of line that up and make sure guys are good to go and they can support. So at that point, that's where uh, senior airman uh, Snuffy or Sergeant Smith, um, that's when they get kind of picked uh, to deploy. Uh, it depends on basically who is on what P-band. And uh, by P-band, I'm talking P1 through P6. And then, um, so if you have a person that is on, say, P2 and the tasking is for, you know, P4 or whatever, um, that person cannot go on that deployment without doing a, a waiver from the commander. And then typically the commanders don't want to sign those waivers. Um, some bases do, some don't, um, but that's outside of my realm. So after I do all the scheduling and it goes to the match comms, um, in regards to base level stuff, uh, that is all on the base uh, fire department to decide who is going on that deployment and who can support. So it's not your fault that staff sergeant's <laughs> been in five years, hasn't deployed once yet. Nope. Um, it's not necessarily anybody's fault. It's just the way that, everything falls into place. So it sounds like there's a bunch of layers uh, before it ends up getting to the base for sure. How, how many, can you share how many guard and reserve take right off the top before that ends up with active duty? I sure can. So with that, um, people are going to be shocked. And then the guard and reserve handle 70% of our deployments uh, just wow. because they have the manpower and they don't have the restrictions that the active duty side has. Uh, so before I got in this job, um, much like many of us on the active duty side, um, everyone always has their kind of um, misinterpretation of how the Guard and Reserve help us out and deploying with them and whatnot. But uh, they pull their fair share, actually more than their fair share of weight with uh, readiness deployments for us. Um, they deploy a lot. They deploy, like I said, 70% of our deployments are handled by them just because we don't have the numbers. And most of our folks, which we'll talk about later, are fenced off and unavailable to deploy due to their geographical location uh, in regards to the base they're located at. And then there's also some other things that come into play um, and whatnot. But uh, the Guard Reserve, um, they don't have restrictions such as, you know, being assigned to a certain MAGCOM or whatnot that, you know, doesn't allow their folks to deploy um, they, they're pretty much all on the table and they can support. Okay. So they shoulder a lot of the burden. Yes, they do. Or, and you said they don't get to choose which deployments to take. So they're not taking all the cool ones. No, no, no. And actually they typically, uh, the guard and reserve, um, typically fill the larger ones, the larger locations first, um, just because they have the numbers. So, cause for example, uh, when I went through, um, Kuwait last year for coming back from Syria, uh, the majority of that fire department was guard and reserve and they have the numbers to do that. Cause they can deploy like three, four, five teams from one base all at once. And they can basically, you know, break a base to deploy to a single location in a deployed area. 
Whereas active duty side, we can't do that. Now, recently the guard is, has been, um, hurting with that because the guard does have real world missions. They do have active, um, fire departments that they do man and support, uh, to sustain airfields. So now they are getting their folks postured correctly. So that way they can still support home station mission and support the deployed fight, uh, much like active duty side. Cool. Well, I mean, continuing on with this conversation, uh, it, it sounds like once it goes through all the different layers at your level and it gets down to the MAGCOMs, from there is when it gets down to the fire department. So speaking just at the MAGCOM level, if we can, mm-hmm. can you explain why certain MAGCOMs get hit with more deployments than others? Uh, what can you say to a master sergeant at base X whose department has three teams out and is fighting a never ending manning, manning shortage? Definitely. And Manning's always been a struggle. Um, ever since I came in, it's always been a fight. And, uh, recently it's been, uh, one of those things where, um, the base I left, we were very much advocating for, you know, Hey, why are we getting hit so much? Why are we getting hit so much? And, you know, why isn't, you know, Magcom, you know, X not getting tagged as much or whatever, uh, it comes down to how forces are postured in this, in the, the different Magcoms. So there's, you have SECAF retained forces, uh, secretary of Air force retained forces, um, and then those are the ones that are 100% always online to deploy. Um, no questions asked. I can tag them, any of those uh, that are that fall under that. So that's going to be all of your ACC bases. So all of ACC is SECAF, along with um, Air Force Material Command, which is Eglin and another base. And then you have AETC. Uh, so lots of AETC bases out there. Um, and then we call it the dogs and cats. Um, it's your air force district of Washington. So Andrews and then the air force Academy, um, even though their numbers are smaller, they're all fall, fall under SECAF. And then uh, there's two bases in global strike that fall under SECAF as well. Um, that's Dias and Ellsworth. And then for, uh, STRATCOM, uh, space command, you have two bases that fall under SECAF as well. And, uh, that's Patrick and Vandenberg. Um, but, with 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 all that, um, when we use up all of those resources at those bases because they're getting hit so hard every time, um, like you saw um, in your department, you know, you eventually run out of people to deploy, and you you also burn people out when you're constantly deploying the same base over and over again. So then that's when, you know, we have to sometimes get reclamas from a base, and so base X will send up a reclama. And a reclama for people that don't know is when um, a unit is unable to sustain or support a deployment um, either due to a um, severe mission impact or a capability not available. And then so either one of those two categories gets sent up through their wickets and then it'll eventually make it sway to us. And when I say wickets, um, typically you're having generals signing off on these uh, reclamas and approvals. Um, they make it to us. And then that's when we have to go in the system and look at other avenues as to fill those deployments. And if we are unable to do that, um, with SECAF forces, then we have to send up a request, uh, to headquarters air force. And at which point, uh, they will direct us to, as to who to use. Um, and usually they will contact that magcom um, and say, Hey, look, you know, we need to fill this. 
can you guys please support? And generally, if it's coming from uh, half, they, they will support it. And that's when you're um, looking at other global strike bases that are not SecAF retained. And also um, USAFE, PACAF, AMC, the rest of Space Command, and AFSOC. Now, with USAFE and PACAF, um, everybody's recently been saying, hey, why aren't they deploying so much? Uh, USAFE and PACAF are also are unique in the fact that um, they are uh, combatant commander. They have combatant commanders. So for USAFE, you have the UCOM commander. And then for PACAF, you have the PACOM commander. They actually are overcharged of our forces there. And so the USAFE commander and PACAF commander report to the, those commanders. And then so they, uh, they have a uh, combat mission, per se, in those two areas um, that they have to support and be ready for. So that's why they are actually been pulled out of the uh, regular contingency fight uh, recently, and they are supporting their own uh, missions. And that's what we call deployed in place, right? Yes, and that and for the the posturing for that is uh, DP coded, um, basically deployed in place. Uh, and then you have different code DX, which is um, you are posturing those forces because you have a home station mission that is. Um, significant enough to retain forces. Um, like say you need to keep an extra FP team. It's the bare minimum that you guys need, um, basically for fire department. It's what we need for, um, CLS. So that you'll DX code those forces and then everyone else you'll make DW. And then those are the DW forces that I can go in there. And if I see a DW, um, I'll actually pull up if, um, that base make sure that they have people assigned uh, properly postured. And then if there's any questions, um, then I can go in there and say, okay, um, airman Snuffy's uh, on a medical profile that expires 30 days prior to this movement. Uh, then I'll reach out to IMSC, uh, the fam there, and then they'll, they'll contact the base and say, Hey, can you guys support this? So I also have access to art reports and also uh, mill PDS, so I can pull up everyone's records. Um, not like record details, but in regards to, you know, if you have an upcoming assignment, uh, things like that. I don't have any editorial rights, so don't send me any requests for PCS assignments. But um, <laughs> I can uh, I can be able to tell, and that's one of the things we do. So we do lots of QCing when we pick people for um Reclama replacements uh, or emergent requirements that pop up like, you know, hey, we got to get guys out the door in 30 days or less. You know, I, I do a very thorough look and I say, OK, look, uh, there's six guys at this base or there may be two guys at this base, one guy at this base. And I'm basically piecing together um, a deployment from six different bases sometimes. And, uh, you know, I got to make sure all six of those guys are good to go to deploy. And so from our perspective or from the frontline troops perspective, is it important to make sure that your AEF online is all taken care of and all your records are straight? Is that what you're looking at? Or are you looking at some other kind of database to make sure they're not on a profile or restricted? Um, basically. So um, managerial wise, um, as a master aren't you know uh, what art is for the younger guys, uh, basically your department um, every month sends up a report showing the, overall unit health strength for your flight. So for all, fi all military firefighters, um, you're either green, yellow, or red, um, green, you can deploy yellow. You have an issue that should be resolved shortly. Red, you are unable to deploy due to 
X issue. Um, I have access to see that portion of it. I can't see, I can't see fitness scores. I can't see medical information. Uh, I'll see like DAV code. So that's, which is a deployment availability code. Um, and it'll be like code 51. And then I have a little chart and it'll be like, Oh, that is this condition in regards to, it could be like pending PCS, pending separation, retirement, whatever. So sometimes it's things like that. But if it's a individual case where, you know, it's like dwell time issue and, you know, they, they deployed a year ago and their time's up before the deployment, then we can tag them even though they're yellow. We do our um, very good vetting. Sometimes the records in the ART report are not accurate. Uh, and then that's where the UDM for that squadron is very key and essential of making sure it's accurate and updated uh, monthly as it should be. So that really drives home the importance of making sure that you're training and that your medical readiness and that everything's all squared away so that you're not only you, but your flight is reporting that they're able to deploy. So that could hold things back too, in terms of being tasked to deploy. Definitely. And if that's a, a great, a great segue into, um, you know, spreading the wealth for deployments per se, uh, all these bases that are getting hit hard. And there, there are some bases out there that constantly get deployed a lot and the one thing I can say to our career field is making sure everyone out there is uh, fit to fight per se and is able to deploy when called upon. So that way you can deploy and not have to make your base uh, send your tasking elsewhere to another base that um, may have already you know, deployed so much uh, and they were looking for a break. So do you also manage equipment kits being sent? Across the AOR, the Middle East AOR, or wherever, PACAF, or? Uh, sometimes. So with how equipment kits are postured now, um, for the most part, downrange has a lot of stuff that's pre- pre-positioned at central areas. So your your large hubs in the AORs, uh, they'll have, you know, bulk storage per se of all the stuff, vehicles, FX kits, um, different UTCs. And then we have all of our reserves and assets um, at a different location that's centralized here in the U.S. Um, all the bases uh, a couple years back sent all of our stuff to Grissom, and now Grissom kind of holds on to all of our UTCs and equipment. So then if I have to deploy something from Grissom, like say a new requirement comes up, a new deployment comes up for you know location Z that we've never deployed to, then most likely there will be a request on there um, from that, from the secretary of defense, um, saying, Hey, look, we need to basically build a fire station from the ground up. So that means we're going to need all the different UTCs, fire station support, comms, SCBAs, potentially hazmat, um, all that stuff. We'll have to go there. And that's, I deploy that just like people, except the kits generally are always going to be green, uh, because they're, uh, maintained at a, a central location. Gotcha. So last thing on deployment tasking. So you mentioned when we were talking before this, that there's two different types of deployment taskings. There's rotational and emergent. Can you explain what those two types are? Yes. So rotational deployments are going to be your ones that, like I said, we do two years out. And when, um, when we get those, you know, those are just assigned to the base. Um, two years out, I'm not looking at personnel art because it's not available because it's two years out. And, um, we just signed to the base, hoping that they can fill those requirements at that time. Uh, and then, so we see those two years out. 
emergent is, uh, or a chop, as some people might hear them, um, those come down uh, from a request for forces, an RFF, uh, from a uh, combatant commander at a certain location. So, for example, the um, the base I was at in Syria is uh, has been shut down. But when the Army first deployed there back in 16, they the Army um, put in a RFF request for forces for senior airfield authority uh, to be given to the Air Force uh, because they wanted to land some cargo aircraft there. And so they put in requests for forces, which entailed, you know, they, we need to have comm, we need to have dirt boys to do the runway repairs, we need to have fire department there because obviously we need to provide fire protection for the aircraft taking off and landing. So they put in the RFF request, and then when they put that in, um, that comes down to us um, at AFPC, and then that's when we um, scramble and say, okay, look, uh, what's the RDD for this deployment? Oh, it's in 60 days. Oh, great, that's 60 days, um, or it could be less. And then so at that point, then we look and see who we can tag it to, and we'll usually be given rule sets from um, higher-ups. So usually at that point, Headquarters Air Force knows there's an emergent requirement coming down, so then they'll give us, um, you know, more lenient rule sets saying, yes, you can dip into these excess – uh, or these these other magcoms that are not SecAF retained. So basically, everyone's on the table, um, but they can still say no if they have an excuse, which is generally going to be the ones that are deployed in place. Um, so at that point, we'll get all the um, troops lined up. We'll send it up for approval, and then uh, our leadership will buy off on it. Say, "Yep, looks good to me," and then they'll send it to to the uh, half and the, the magcoms, and then. They'll say, yes, we support this emergent requirement. Um, and then that's when the bases will get notified. So those emergent requirements sound like the cool deployments. Uh, yes, they can be. Yeah. And so the SECAF forces or those, those ones that are kind of, they're the priority, they're the first, they're the go-to when the taskings come down. Are they, they are not looked at first when those emergent requirements come down? So, for example, we had, um, and like I said, I won't reveal anything that's uh, classified or um, I'm not able to, but uh, as an example, we've had something uh, recently come down and uh, we had to fill it regardless. They basically said, you will fill all these positions. So then we had to pull um, from certain bases that they may or may not have had um, rotational requirements scheduled but this takes priority and then we will figure out the rotational stuff another time. So I gotcha. So it, it becomes the priority. It becomes the number one thing. Yep. And that's, and honestly, that's what um, I feel like, you know, as air force firefighter, that's the things that we should be looking forward to is, you know, don't look at it as, Oh man, I got tagged. I got deployed in 30 days, you know, no notice. You should look at it as, all right, you know, you know, as our Emirates creed says, my nation calls, you know, you got to go out there and, you know, fight the fight right away. Yeah. This is what you signed up for. So yeah, exactly. Don't be surprised if you get a short notice. Yeah. Oh, I was saying, I've seen people get notified, um, you know, like literally the day of saying, Hey, look, you got to get your bags packed. You guys got to leave like right now. Right. And then, uh, one more thing I wanted to touch on real quick. Um, the, with the emergent and all that, um, that does not come down to, uh, the QRF, QST, fob hopping stuff that happens. Uh, all that stuff is managed at AFSENT forward. Uh, that's 
downrange. Uh, they handle so all that's, those. That's managed it at the Matchcom level. Nothing, nothing. Yeah, the FBC that, with that's them. handled at AFSAN inner theater, uh, inner AOR. Um, the only thing I know about is when I'm deploying folks, if they have a little um, line remark that says QRF, QST, whatever, um, then that's the only thing I know is they'll probably be doing some uh, fob hopping missions. And that kind of stuff gets assigned prior to, obviously, because there's a lot of training requirements associated mm-hmm. with all that stuff. So, Definitely. Well, that, that's a good segue into our, our final talking point here is the training. So how important is readiness training in terms of being ready to deploy? Have you seen taskings not go through as a result of incomplete training? Yeah, I'd say readiness training is vital. Um, and, it, and everything in regards to, uh, you can even look at PT testing as being readiness training because um, if you look at it, the bare minimum to deploy for a fitness test is strength and running. And by running, um, I've had a doctor tell me before, if you can sprint a hundred yards, um, you're good to go to deploy. And what that comes down to is, you know, if you're getting attacked, you need to be able to be quick on your feet, you need to be mentally sound and be able to execute the mission. And that's where all the training comes into play. Uh, so these, uh, when we do prime beef days at our, uh, in our squadrons and we're doing, you know, tent building or we're doing, um, you know, bear base setup or whatnot, uh, you want to make sure that you're definitely paying attention, you know, and actually being a, a valuable uh, player with that training. Uh, Cause I can tell you right now on the, my last two deployments, I was, we were out there building tents. We were filling sandbags. Uh, we were running sea wire in Afghanistan. Um, so, and we were also doing um, ECP duty at the main gate. Uh, you had firefighters in Afghanistan on a 50 cal and a 249 uh, in the guard tower at the main gate. It's those kind of situations where you would never think as a firefighter, you know, oh, I'll never have to do this. Well, deploy to a austere location and uh, see what happens, you know, uh, because even in Syria, we were doing things where um, towards the end of my deployment, firefighters were being required to um, help park aircraft. So we were doing TA duty, transient alert duties. Uh, we were uh, trained on how to set up all the age equipment. And then we were also, we got dump truck training, bulldozer training with the dirt boys. Uh, we were doing minor ECP do, yeah, detail there. Um, so it's, it's all hands on deck. And then all that expeditionary training comes into play. Sounds like you're augmenting a lot of the civil engineer duties. Definitely. When you're in Syria, can you talk a little bit more about some of the, uh, some of the bare base type of tasks that you had to execute? You talked about dump truck training. You talked about, uh, Afghanistan manning ECPs and stuff like that. Is there anything else specific to the prime beef training that we do that you had to actually apply when you were in Afghanistan or Syria or even Iraq? Oh, definitely. Um, so in, in Afghanistan, we actually built uh, DFPs, defensive fighting positions at the fire station. And we literally, we pulled up the CBT and we built them per per requirement. So we actually, no kidding. we got some wood, we got sandbags. Well, we put the, put them on the roof, all that, all that fun stuff. Uh, because we were kind of like the, the Alamo per se, you know, our fire station, we were going to make it to where, you know, if we got overrun, we were going to, that was our last stand. And we actually did have a Taliban fighter jump the fence when I met, when I was in Afghanistan, uh, he jumped the fence. And one of the firefighters I was working dispatch, that was a, an extra body there. 
Um, he actually went out with OSI. It was two OSI agents and a firefighter, and they found the guy in the junkyard. Uh, so um, things like that where, you know, when you're going through um, fieldcraft hostile training, CST, and you're doing these types of maneuvers with the Army, you know, pay attention, do the training, and learn from it because, you know, your life may be on the line. Um, I spoke with um, the AFSENT fire chief last year, and he told me that in um, – in Afghanistan, uh, some firefighters were supporting the army by providing suppressing fire while they were um, retreating back. So, firefighters are out are out there, you know, slinging weapons, slinging bullets um, at the enemy uh, in these austere locations. And the other thing too is when firefighters also get hurt in these austere locations, the firefighters that are also at your big rotational bases like IUD and Kuwait, they have to go out there and backfill these firefighters that get hurt and sent home early. So even though you might get a deployment to, um, a bigger base that, you know, you don't take a weapon right away. Um, I have seen firefighters get sent forward from those locations and get issued a weapon, um, from that base's armory. Uh, so they can go out there and, uh, you know, augment these forces, not saying it happens a lot, but I have seen it happen. Uh, always be ready and, uh, know that, as a total force, uh, active duty, guard and reserve, we're all doing the same mission. We're all in the fight together. So when you do deploy and you see that uh, you're deploying with, um, you know, predominantly guard or reserve, uh, learn from that. Uh, there's a guard fire chief uh, that I was deployed with. Um, he came out to visit when I was in Syria and um, he had a wealth of knowledge because he was um, a firefighter with uh, New York City Fire Department. So, um, I took the time to actually have him talk to the guys, give his, uh, point of view in regards to the numerous deployments he's been on and also his day-to-day -day job as a New York city fireman and how to better our skills as firefighters. So, um, look to your guys, um, that you work with at your fire station and, uh, you know, look to them for guidance, for help. And also if you see someone that, um, needs to be doing something better for their, uh, pre-deployment, uh, then let them know. And then I will give one little plug in here. Uh, so if there is someone out there that um, has never deployed, wants to deploy, um, you can volunteer for deployments. There's a process for that. Um, the best thing you can do is speak with your supervisor and have your supervisor speak with, um, run it up the chain to your, um, all the way up to the deputy chief or fire chief. And then they can route paperwork up to uh, let you volunteer for a deployment if there is something available. Deputy Chief, they're going to love you after that plug, man. I know. Um, Everybody in Air Force Fire Protection will be going to their chief saying, hey, I want to deploy. <laughs> I yeah. listened to a podcast and a guy told me I could deploy if I asked you. And like I said, it's um, when you volunteer for a deployment, uh, it, it negates a lot of uh, uh, other issues. Like if you're in the wrong P-band, it'll negate that. But also, too, you have to get approval from your whole chain of command. So there is a proper MFR out there for this. And your chain of command at your flight level. So your fire department, everyone there has to approve it. And then it has to go to your squadron commander and then your wing commander. And then after the wing commander, then you're good to go. Um, so not necessarily saying that you need to flood all your deputy fire chiefs with requests, but if, you know, Manning supports it, you want to deploy, there's a tasker out there, give it a shot. Well, Ryan, I, I do appreciate your time, man. You, you gave a lot of insight into deployments and 
and, and how important the training is and a lot of your experience. I really appreciate your time. So do you have anything else to add before we finish up? No, I, I appreciate you having me on here. Um, I really enjoyed this. Um, like I said, any questions anyone has deployment wise, look me up on global. Um, my name I'm sure will be in the, um, the notes of this podcast, but uh, feel free to shoot me an email. I can answer any kind of specific questions in general or um, any other uh, info I can pass along uh, that's feasible to do so. But uh, I love the podcast. You guys are doing great work. Um, I look forward to you know hearing many more episodes and many more seasons of this as well. So thank you guys for what you guys do. Yeah, it's our pleasure, man, and a lot more to come. We look forward to it too. I appreciate your time, Ryan. Awesome. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fire Dog Podcast. You can find more content just like this regularly posted to our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash the Fire Dog Podcast. That's facebook.com forward slash the Fire D-A-W-G Podcast. Please like, subscribe, share with your friends, and don't forget to rate this episode wherever you listen to your podcast. This is host Matt Wilson with guest Ryan Ranieri. Until next time, stay safe.